We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Hello, I'm Caitlin Chin. I work at CSIS, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. Our guest today is Kirk Nara, who is a partner at the global law firm Wilmer Hale and a co-chair of the firm's cybersecurity and privacy practice. Kirk also teaches information privacy law at American University's Washington College of Law. And today we'll talk about trends and developments in privacy law in the United States and European Union. Kirk, thank you for being here today. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. What's going on in the privacy world? And perhaps we can start with some of the biggest news so far this summer. So there's been a lot of talk recently about a new bipartisan comprehensive privacy bill. As we know, the European Union's GDPR has been effective for about four years, starting in 2018. But in the United States, progress on federal privacy legislation had been mostly stalled up until recently. What is your take on the new American Data Privacy and Protection Act, and will it change the game, so to speak? So, you know, this is a field that is a brand new field in this is a law field. It's about a 20 year old field. And you reference GDPR. You could you could argue that probably 50 percent of the law is new since about 2018. So it's changed. The change is just constant. And you're right that the U.S. doesn't have a single national law like GDPR is for Europe. We have hundreds of laws, dozens of laws all over the, you know, it's all kinds of different laws. This new proposal, I'll say, I don't think it's anything actually introduced yet. I think it's a draft that's still circulating, but it's a, it's a proposal is designed, I think, to sort of kickstart this debate at the national level. You said stalled, which is a fair comment. I think there's been lots of there's been lots of activity that hasn't yet led to anything. And the conventional wisdom, which I think is mo- is right, is that there's been two topics that have really been causing the logjam. And, you know, there's a Democratic position on those two issues and a Republican position on those issues. That's a little bit of an overgeneralization. And this, quote, consensus proposal which is a partial consensus is designed to get over the hurdle on those two issues and then move forward with the rest. So, I mean, it's a real proposal. It's got a lot of interesting substance to it. I am not personally holding my breath on the law passing this term, although a number of my peers in the field think there's a good chance that it's going to pass this year. But it's a nice it's a nice start. We can talk about some of the substance of it, but it's a it's a way to I think try to get past these two issues that have been the stumbling block so far. That still means we got a hundred other issues to talk about in the bill, but it's, it's a good effort to get that moving. And very quickly, you mentioned two issues that are stumbling blocks. Sure. What are these issues? And maybe very briefly, how does the bill propose to address them? Yeah. The two issues are what's called preemption. What that generally means is whether state laws will continue to apply or not. So California Consumer Privacy Act statutes in Virginia and Colorado and Connecticut and, and Utah 
will those laws continue to be in effect or will the national law take their place? We've had different models in, in U.S. privacy law in the past. The HIPAA law and rules, for example, set a federal baseline but allow states to go higher than that in protecting privacy. So that, that, that's one of the big issues. Second issue is whether there's going to be what's called a private right of action, which is can an, an individual sue for a violation of the law. We know there's going to be government enforcement, no question about that. But the question of whether consumers will be allowed to sue is a very hotly debated topic. You mentioned that in addition to these two sticking points, that there are hundreds of other provisions in the bill that we could also discuss. And I know that there's also been a lot of concerns lately about how the private sector may expand the surveillance reach of law enforcement agencies, especially when it comes to details like location information or facial recognition. And one of the things that struck me that this new draft bill by Plone, McMorris Rogers, and Wicker is that there is a prohibition on transferring precise geolocation and biometric information, except with a person's standalone affirmative express consent. So what do you think are some of the implications of these provisions? And is this a trend that we're seeing in other bills or laws at the federal or state levels? It's interesting. I mean, this question of government access to data is obviously a hot issue, mm-hmm. but it's sort of next door to most of the privacy debate in the sense that most of the law, most, most of this current proposal, most of the CCPA, most of the laws that exist, most of the privacy laws that exist right. in the United States regulate private companies. And so they don't really try to regulate the government. And many of them don't even regulate the government as data collectors. I mean, the government has employees. So there's Government plays lots of roles, but for the most part, the laws have not dealt all that much with how the government gets access to information that the private sector has. That provision you mentioned is a, I mean, I, I think it's possible that one of the results of that provision is that it will make it harder for the government to get access to things like precise location information. But I'm not sure that's actually the primary driver of that. The larger point of that provision is so that that precise location information isn't sold from, you know, so that when you're walking down the street, you're not going to get an ad on your phone for the store that you're walking by. These bills are primarily directed at private company commercial activity, mainly with customers and consumers. And there are some sort of spillover effects with the government. So we talked a little bit about the preemption of state laws, and you mentioned how there are privacy laws that exist at both the federal and state levels. So what would this or other federal bills that we've seen so far, how do they differ from either proposed laws or enacted laws at the state level? Is there anything that we might see at a federal level that we haven't seen yet at a state level? Well, that's a, that's a tricky question. I think the preemption issue is the sort of two components of that. Maybe mm-hmm. actually probably more than two, but let me, let me hit mm-hmm. on a couple of those. So one of the questions about preemption is whether you want a national standard to govern instead of potentially 50 state laws that could all say different things. I think the primary driver is sort of a consistency point somewhat more than a substantive point. And I don't, I don't want to entirely divorce those two, but it's 
if if you have 50 laws that say 50 different things that's really hard for anybody to figure out and some of that you know complication of figuring it out is not helpful to, to protecting privacy so that's a piece of it one of the concerns that privacy advocates certain legislators certainly have about preemption is that you might have a situation where there's a state law that provides some really good protection that isn't in a federal law and therefore you you know you might want to have that state law stay in place one of the things that i think has been happening in the broader debate is that as each new state law comes into play and is that we're now up to five general purpose state laws i think the personal opinion and i think that this bill reflects that a little bit is that the substance of that federal law keeps rising mm -hmm. so that one of the ways you're going to get people in Congress to vote for a bill that would preempt state law is that there aren't obvious gaps between what state law already provides and what the federal law. If, if, if this was viewed as a significant step backwards on privacy protection, I don't think people in Congress or lots of people in Congress wouldn't vote for that. I'm not sure California senators and congressmen would vote for a bill that was noticeably less effective than CCPA was. So I think that's been part of the struggle. And so part of what I think is going on in this consensus bill is it's largely a bill that is going to preempt these state laws. There's a ton of exceptions to that, but the CCPA in general and the, and the similar state laws are going to be preempted if this goes into place. But I think the idea is they're going to replicate those standards in general. So for the most part, I think that the, the this consensus proposal is sort of generally at that level. There's some provisions about things like the duty of loyalty, which arguably go a little higher than what we've seen in the state law, although that's been a sort of a direction that that people have been talking about for a while. So is it it's a lot of tricky pieces in terms of how they all fit together. You know, I've 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 read through the bill a number of times and each time I read it, I find new things that I've got questions about and wonder how that's going to work. But, you know, one, one of the things that I think has happened because we've had so much focus on preemption and a private cause of action over the last couple of years is that the rest of the substance of the law, we haven't actually spent that much time on. And that's the meat of the law. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the part that's sort of the most important has actually gotten less attention because those two issues have dominated the discussion. You talked a little bit about the meat of law, and I was wondering if you can maybe just give us some highlights or some overview, some either federal bills or state laws of, of what provisions we should be looking at. Where, where do you think the debate should focus? So privacy laws, if you sat down to sort of outline a privacy law, mm -hmm. you're going to have, you know, you need to address a couple of topics. You need to decide who's covered by the law, what companies, what businesses, what entities, you know, whatever that definition is going to be. If you're if you're in the healthcare industry, there's the HIPAA rules that apply to certain kinds of people in the healthcare industry. If you're in the financial services industry, there's Gramm-Leach-Bliley that applies to certain kinds of financial institutions. State laws, for example, that have been passed so far apply to businesses, commercial businesses of a certain size. They try not to apply to everybody so that if you've got a coffee stand that you're open three days a week and you make $50,000 for serving people in your neighborhood, you're not going to be covered by the CCPA, for example. The state laws have also been a, only for profit. So most of the nonprofits are not subject to any of the state laws at this point. We don't have employee data covered under most of these state laws. So there's a who's covered and a what they're covered for. 
then you have sort of the substance of the privacy laws. I, I always think that the most important provision in a privacy law is for the companies who are covered by the law, what can they do and what are they not allowed to do with the data they have? Historically, in the United States, we have a premise that's called notice and choice, which is every, everybody goes to a website, there's a privacy policy at the bottom of the page. I'm sure all of your listeners are going to read every one of those, but most people don't tend to read every privacy policy. It's almost impossible to do so. But if you say in the privacy policy, I'm going to do the following 10 things, you're usually allowed to do those things. And so there's lots of criticism of that approach. This proposal tries to start suggesting some inherent limitations on that. There's this idea of a duty of loyalty, which a couple of privacy professors, Woody Hartzog and Neil Richards, have particularly been focusing on for the, for the last several years, that is designed to set some standards independent of what a consumer reads in a privacy policy. The HIPAA law and regulations that I've referenced for the healthcare industry does some of that as well. That set of regulations imposes particular substantive limitations on hospitals, doctors, health insurers, whether or not the consumer agrees or not. It's just there's some things they can do and there's some things they can't do. So I think that's a really important part of this law. We're, we're navigating that a little bit. That may be the single most important piece of the law. Individual rights, what kind of rights you have, how easy they are to access, how data flows from the entity who collects it downstream. Do consumers have the right to say, you can't share my data with other people? Is that what's called an opt-in choice? Is that an opt-out choice? So it's a bunch of details and the details really matter. Another point that's related to preemption, but that I think is not getting enough attention is how other federal laws are going to apply. Most of the state laws simply say, if you're covered by an existing federal privacy law, you're not subject to this state law. This proposal basically says that. That's just interesting. I mean, that means that we're gonna have for example, the healthcare sector, which I deal with a lot, your health information held by a hospital is going to be subject to the HIPAA rules. Your health information held by a wearable or a mobile app or somebody else is going to be subject to this, this new law. That's just interesting. The same data has different rules depending on who has it. That's not an obvious answer, but that's sort of where we're going right now. You mentioned that there are also five comprehensive state laws. So we've seen Utah and Connecticut become the latest states to enact comprehensive privacy laws this year. I was wondering, could you maybe give us some highlights from these state laws as well? How do they address the substantive boundaries that you described that are that's proposed in the federal framework? It's a tricky question. Maybe let's use CCPA just as a, as a start. I mean, the California Consumer Privacy Act is the first of those laws it was passed very quickly. There's a little bit of history to why it was passed so quickly. It was not, because it was done so quickly, I don't think it was a model of clear legislative drafting. It's already been amended by a referendum that's going into effect in January. And so companies right now are going through an evolution of, you know, we did CCPA a year or two ago. Now we have to change it a lot for this new, it's called the CPRA. They are certainly giving consumers particularly in California, meaningful new rights. The most obvious one from CCPA is the right to opt out of having your data sold with selling being defined very broadly. So it covers some things that wouldn't, you know, if you're just looking up the words in the dictionary, wouldn't seem like being sold, but 
we have to deal with that. There's some new provisions that are going to deal with sharing of data. I think I think that idea of how data moves from one company to another company is a really important part of this debate. I mean, if you again, you go to the doctor, you go to a hospital, you go to your bank, you go to your store, you go to a restaurant, whatever it is, you know that you're dealing with them. And you may not know everything they're collecting about you, but you at least have some sense as a consumer of your interaction with them. When your data then moves to various other people in, a, in the data ecosystem, you don't have any idea what, the, what they're doing with that data or even that they have it. So I think that's, a, that's become a real focus of attention a lot of that discussion is focused on the advertising industry, but it's not, it's not limited to that at all. So shifting gears a little bit, privacy laws will affect a wide range of companies and individuals, but many businesses today, and especially with this massive shift to online commerce, communications, and transactions, do not solely operate within any one state or even any one country. So in addition to privacy developments in the United States, Many businesses are also navigating compliance with global privacy laws, including the European Union's GDPR. So what trends are we seeing in Europe? And four years after the GDPR became effective, what does enforcement look like? I mean, enforcement is certainly growing. Yeah, that's, that's a trend we see just in general. Is, is You don't tend to see a law go into effect on day one and enforcement start on day two. There's lots of reasons. I think the regulators in general are trying to give people some chance to sort of work things out. And we're now seeing in Europe that I think the patience has run a little thin on some of these because it's now four years later. So we are certainly seeing more enforcement. It's not it's not like there's 50 cases every day, but we're seeing more enforcement. I would expect that to continue to grow. You know, the global environment is really hard and It's analogous to what we see in the United States, where some people are worried, some companies are worried about a whole bunch of states having their own laws because it's really hard to figure out what to do at a national level. That same issue then happens worldwide. I mean, obviously, there are some companies that are not global, but the bigger Mm -hmm. companies certainly are global. And one of my sort of biases in in this discussion is I favor just clarity and simplicity. I mean, I to some extent, I don't even care what the law says as much. I'd like to know what the rules are. And so what we have in the global environment now is it's really hard to figure out what the rules are and how to make them work and how your business partners want to, you know, your business partners have an approach to how they want to make it work. And they're trying to pass that to you and you have an issue and then your customers have an issue and just connecting all those dots is really hard. We are seeing trends towards something called data localization which sort of runs against everything we've done in economics for 50 years of trying to increase global commerce. We're seeing meaningful new restrictions imposed on data moving from Europe to the United States, for example. That's risen to the level of international diplomacy, where the head of the EU and the president of the United States are issuing statements about trying to fix that problem and address that problem. So that's clearly, that's clearly an issue there. You know, data security is another thing where there isn't as much detail in the in GDPR, for example, but companies are trying to protect themselves by trying to impose data security standards on people in their data chains. And if I'm a company that has 500 vendors and I try to say to 500 vendors, here's the standards I want you to have, but each of those vendors has 500 clients, each of whom is saying, here are the standards we want you to have. 
that's just a lot of moving around to basically say everyone should have good security. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're definitely seeing that become more complicated. The movement right now is to more laws. Now, in theory, this U.S. movement to have a national law might stop that trend. But what we have in the United States is we just have more and more and more laws. And each law covers its own little thing. It might be an industry. It might be a practice like telemarketing or email marketing. It might be particular kinds of data categories. Mm -hmm. The EU tries to avoid that by having that single rule. But again, different countries are interpreting it differently. I, I deal a lot with medical research issues. And there's a particular issue in the medical research area where you know, there's one question that comes up all the time. Spain answers it one way, Germany answers it a different way, France answers it a third way, all based on the same provision of GDPR, and those answers are mutually exclusive. And so that's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to run a clinical trial that covers all of Europe right. because the different regulators look at the same language differently. So having one law makes that somewhat easier, but having one law doesn't eliminate those differences. So I am curious, you mentioned data localization and also the flow of information. Some countries have enacted data localization laws or laws on cross-border data transfers for stated privacy or national security reasons. First of all, what is data localization and what is your take on how that relates to meaningful privacy protections for individuals? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We have sort of two, I'm going to get probably outside of my wheelhouse, but we've got sort of two different trends on, on localization. You have, and localization is basically data stays in the country, doesn't leave the country. And I mean, that's, that's a oversimplified version of that. We have data localization policies in repressive countries. We have it in Russia, we have it in China, we have it in a number of other, you know, which is, I don't know if that's national security or it's, controlling individuals. I mean, there's a, there, it's not really, it doesn't really seem like it's different by actual privacy concerns. <laughs> then you have what the EU is doing. And the EU, driven by a couple of court cases, is basically saying that because we're so concerned about the privacy of European citizens, mm -hmm. we're going to make it really hard for their data to go to other countries particularly the United States, because those other countries don't protect that data as well as we do. So that's a different model. I mean, that's not a repressive model. That's a that's designed to, to make sure that European citizens have their privacy rights protected at the level that the EU has in place. You know, we can debate that a lot. I don't know eventually if Europe makes that so hard to have data move globally. I don't know that that's ultimately going to be good for European consumers because it's going to make it harder for companies to do business in Europe or companies who aren't European. It's going to make it harder for them to do business in Europe. So that's why I think you're having these diplomatic discussions about trying to make that work. There's also a funny, a little bit of a disconnect. One of your first questions had to do with, you know, government access to data. That's mainly what's driving this concern, mm -hmm. you know, in the European courts. If you go online and you buy a sweater from some French company and it gets shipped or something gets shipped because you bought clothing or jeans or whatever it is, you know what? The U.S. government really is not likely to be interested in that data. <laughs> they just they don't care. And so that's something that sort of gets factored into the debate, but it's it's just complicated. <laughs> you have to really navigate that. And so 
I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between the, these laws that are designed to regulate commercial activities and the fear that the government might somehow get access to the data because the blue jeans store has it. I think it's also a little bit disingenuous from the European governments because their governments have access to a lot of that data mm -hmm. themselves. I'm not sure they have any less access than the US government does. So it's it's a funny bit of disconnect there. But again, I that's an issue that may get worked out in the short term, but it's not worked out right now. So maybe that's a good transition into the ongoing negotiations that you mentioned. A couple months ago in late March, the European Commission and United States announced an agreement on a new transatlantic data privacy framework. And I believe that they're calling this an agreement in principle because details are still forthcoming. But this framework is expected to address some of the concerns that the European Court of Justice raised in a Trump's two decision so about U.S. intelligence authorities. So first of all, what were these concerns raised in Trump's two? And could you maybe give us your initial thoughts on this upcoming framework or on the maybe situation more broadly? The Schrems 2, which is, you know, followed Schrems 1, was basically the European courts, not the European privacy officials, but the European courts concluding that the program that was that allowed data to move from the EU to the US did not provide sufficient protection for personal data of mainly European citizens from access by the United States government. Again, it didn't require any showing that the US government actually cared about that data, actually did access it. It was sort of a, a largely theoretical holding. And for most data in most situations, it was entirely theoretical because the government never looked at that stuff. But it was that possibility that led to that. This framework, it's sort of hard to comment too much on the framework because there's very few details about it. And I don't, I, I don't think we're really at a point. I mean, you, you can say we agreed on a framework, but you know, that's like agreeing to an that, that that's agreeing to the table of contents in the privacy bill, not the substance of the privacy bill. And that doesn't that doesn't get you very far into it. I do think. I mean, there's a couple of different things going on. The European court decision is clearly a pressure point on the United States to pass a national privacy law. It's not at all clear that a national privacy law would, in fact, address the government's access to that. <laughs> and in fact, I think it's likely to not address that. So there's, again, there's sort of a disconnect there. I think there is pressure on the European side to reach some kind of an accommodation so that commerce can get back to normal, which is in the interests of both Europeans and US consumers and businesses. There are some sort of more cynical folks in my space who basically think, oh, they're going to reach an agreement. And then five years later, there's going to be Schrems 3, and they'll strike it down and we'll have another, you know, I'm not sure that's the worst result if we have sort of stability for a few years, even if we had to have to go back to it. I'm not sure there's a perfect solution. And I'm not sure that, you know, the, the real question for the U.S. government is, is the U.S. Go government going to change its law enforcement access, possible law enforcement access to, to data in order to accommodate the flow of this data to businesses in the United States? They may be willing to bend. They're not going to fundamentally say, we'll never look at this stuff because there's too many situations right. where they might need to. Most of the time they don't. So that's just, that's just how we're, we're sort of navigating that, that challenge. 
Have we seen any examples of commerce being impacted so far? We touched upon how businesses benefit from clarity and likely individuals and governments do as well. What will it take to, I guess, have long-term clarity or stability beyond a few years? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Every every time there's a major new law passed, there are some companies who are going to say, this law is going to prevent us from doing business and we're going to stop doing business. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of any meaningful pullout from the European Union by US businesses because of GDPR. I am not aware of any meaningful movement of companies from California to other states because of CCPA. There are certainly advocacy groups in the privacy space, advocacy groups on the corporate side, who almost automatically, when there's a new privacy bill proposed, will say this will impede innovation. Mm-hmm. And I sort of blank that all out because they say it all the time. And it's not, a, you know, they just say that almost automatically. And <laughs> now there are occasionally proposals where I can say, yeah, that's going to be a real, that's going to be a real problem. And it seems to be disproportionate to any benefit. That happens sometimes. I mean, mm-hmm. some some of the issues, I mean, the CCPA creates some really challenging contractual issues in the sort of data ecosystem. You could say that what those challenges go to is data flowing to all these other companies and therefore that's okay. That's a that's a legitimate position. When each new state set requires different words in their contracts and you got to keep changing your kind of, that's not useful. That's just, that, that strikes me as just spinning wheels for the sake of spinning wheels without actually advancing privacy protections. And so we'll get there. And I think, I think that this bill that you started off talking about this proposed consensus bill, I, I posted this the other day. I mean, it's not perfect if you're a privacy advocate, but there's a lot to like in there. And it really is a you know, it's a meaningfully different bill than we would have seen two, three, four, or five years ago. Again, does that mean it's good enough is a different question, but it is, I think we're getting to a point where we have a reasonable possibility there's going to be a national law that will start to impose realistic restrictions on what companies are doing, start to give consumers particular kinds of rights, whether we're at the right balance, I'm not going to say that yet, but we're getting there. And I think we're certainly moving in the right direction. Shifting gears, what privacy-related actions have we seen so far from the Federal Trade Commission under Chair Lena Khan? And what might we expect from the FTC in the upcoming years? At this point, I mean, she's still, for purposes of sort of drawing big conclusions, she, she's still very new. And on privacy, until a couple of weeks ago, the FTC was had four four members, two Democrats, two Republicans. And so the sort of conventional wisdom was that they needed to get the fifth commissioner confirmed who was going to be a Democrat who would let them move forward on new privacy initiatives. I think we're starting to see that. I think we're going to continue to see that as long as this administration is in place. Um, that's not something that spins on a dime. I mean, there were a couple of quick actions that weren't that controversial. We're going to see, I think, two different kinds of activity from the FTC. One is enforcement of current law. I think the FTC is looking for new cases. They're looking to bring important cases. They're looking to expand their reach. They are looking for ways to make their enforcement actions more meaningful. I mean, some of that is just based on the the statute that they usually bring their cases under is the FTC Act from 1912 or something like that, that 
general to overgeneralize doesn't give them authority to find people in the first instance. It basically, if the FTC thinks you're doing something wrong, essentially they're able to say, we're going to make you stop doing that thing and you're going to agree to not do it anymore. Again, we can debate whether that's, a, whether that's enough enforcement. That's sort of what they have now. So they're going to bring cases. They're going to look to have a meaningful impact on their cases. That's one thing. Second thing, I'm, I'm, I'm amending my list as I'm talking about this. Second thing is they're going to give new guidance and they're going to try to expand the reach of some of their laws through new guidance. They did, for example, last summer, I want to say, I don't, don't hold me to that date. Since Khan has been in place, they've given new guidance on a provision, for example, in the healthcare space dealing with data breach notifications for personal health records, which expanded through guidance what mm -hmm. I think everyone thought that law meant. There'll be a test on that at some point because, again, it seemed to go beyond what the law said and certainly how most people were looking at the law. They just issued new guidance on that. I expect we're going to see more new guidance going forward. Then we're also seeing the FTC start a lengthy process, a perhaps lengthy process to do a broad-based privacy rulemaking. It's a long process because they don't have direct authority to issue a broad privacy rule under any of their existing statutes. There's an additional process they can jump through. They are clearly going to start that. That seems to have been dependent on this fifth commissioner coming in. In fact, there were some interviews with Chairman Khan even in the last day or two that sort of said that they're, they're getting moving on that. That's something that I think they will get moving on. You know, originally when they were proposing that, the sense was they're going to start that long process because they don't really think Congress is going to do anything and they don't want to wake up five years from now and say, oh, we should have started that process because Congress didn't do anything. It's possible now with the bill that you mentioned that maybe Congress is going to do something. And so Congress clearly can act faster than the FTC can on this point, at least get to a final, final position. But I think they're going to be moving in parallel for, for a while now. So again, they're, they're looking to be more aggressive. They're looking to be more creative. They're looking to change the game as much as they can within their existing rules. And they're looking to push for a new legal environment where there is more authority for these, for these regulators. And the other thing that, to watch, you know, the FTC is really important. The other thing to watch is the state attorneys general who are sort of parallel. They have their own authority. They have similar authority. They can do their own thing. And they're not necessarily as dependent on some of the steps that the FTC has to go through. And so the state AGs are getting smarter and they have talented people and they're getting more aggressive and they're you know, just more engaged in this general space. It's not every state, but more and more of the states are getting engaged in this issue, broadly defined privacy issue going forward. And that's clearly going to be something to keep watch on for the next few years. Can you give us some examples of recent actions taken by state AGs? Maybe what have these looked like? What has the focus been on? I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different cases, some of them involving clients of mine that I'm probably not going to go into very much. So I, th there are similar certain kinds of issues that state AGs are interested in. They're clearly interested in kids, you know, data about kids and teens. They're clearly interested in health-related data. They're clearly interested in situations where there is a perceived discriminatory impact. They're interested in financial services matters. They're interested in security breach matters. And so mm -hmm. I don't want to say that covers every case they've done recently, but that covers a lot of the actions that they've, that they've done recently. You know, a single state can act. 
a couple of states can act together. There's been a number of cases that are sort of 50 state AG cases. They're cooperating, they're talking to each other, they're working together. It's a really interesting development in this, in this space. I mean, I think there is certainly concern about the possibility of those actions becoming more political. State AGs are, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. in every state, but state AGs mostly are elected. They may entirely be elected. You know, that's definitely something to watch. I'm not sure that that has happened most of the time so far, but you can, just reading the news, you can see state AG cases that are getting looked at that seem to be driven by political positions. The FTC is not completely apolitical, but at the same time, they have more constraints on on their actions. So again, that's just something to watch and certainly something that my team pays a lot of attention to and, you know, everybody in my field pays a lot of attention to. Outside of privacy, we've also seen state AG actions, for example, in the areas of antitrust and digital markets. Speaking of children's privacy, which you mentioned could be a priority for state AGs and, of course, is for the Federal Trade Commission as well. And also for President Biden and Biden's State of the Union speech, he mentioned banning targeted advertising for children. So is data protection for minors or children an area where you maybe see greater focus on in the near future at the federal level or even within the EU? So you mentioned early on about the federal debate that's been going on. And you talk about it's being stalled in the last couple of years. You could argue that there's been a federal debate on privacy law going back to the mid 90s. And that nothing has really happened meaningfully out of that. The main law that got passed when this was first an issue in the in the mid to late 90s was a law dealing with children's privacy. And they dealt with children by defining children as under the age of 13. That means that the day some kid turns 13, they don't have rights under that, they don't have protections under that law. There are certainly people who think that there should be new, you know broader laws providing protections for people above the age of 12. I think that's something, and that seems to be something the Biden administration is interested in. That certainly California uses, I think, 16 in their statute. So there's definitely, I think, an interest in lifting up that age date. I don't know that it's going to go to 18 necessarily, but I think there's this sense that the law statute should we should examine whether I have a statute that will provide additional protection. I think that's, a you know, that children is one example, though, of this question of, are we going to treat different audiences and different kinds of information differently under a privacy law? I mean, the GDPR is generally a one-size-fits-all law. There are some exceptions. There are certain categories of sensitive data that includes health data, but it also includes things like trade union membership, which we don't really think is that sensitive in the United States. There are certain additional protections for, I don't remember, I think it's 16, although I'm not doing that from memory in, in Europe. Health data in general. I mean, I use when I, when I teach health data, is all health data the same? I mean, your health data includes your cancer diagnosis, your HIV diagnosis, your mental health, substance abuse. It also includes whether you had a physical last year and whether you broke your ankle playing tennis. And so that's not all the same. And that's a real important question. The US law, for the most part today, because our laws are very targeted, they tend to address the particular situation. So like the HIPAA rules, which I always, I often use as an example, is very well tailored to let the healthcare industry do its job while still protecting patient privacy. GDPR has very little of that nuance. 
And so that's one of the questions we're seeing in the United States. If we bring in a general national US privacy law, are we going to lose the nuance that we have under some of these other laws? And again, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, there's no right answer to that. I want to make sure, I, I hope that the legislators are thinking about that issue, but I'm not sure that you should say, yes, have nuance, no, have one size fits all. That's again, that's a substantive point that I think is not getting enough attention these days. It is a really tough question. I guess that's the thing with a comprehensive federal privacy law. It just applies to so many diverse different types of companies, data, sectors, geographic locations. Yep. There are just so many different <laughs> facets to consider. Yeah, and, um, and, and, that, and that leads to the question. I mean, do, you, you could build an argument that U.S. privacy law is fine. The U.S. privacy law deals with lots of different issues in lots of different ways, and that we cover a lot of ground. You could also argue that that means there's a whole bunch of stuff that isn't regulated. But again, we have lots of laws in the United States. It's not that we have no law. We have lots of laws. I mean, I, mm-hmm. one, one of the lines I've been, I've been saying when I talk about this topic is that my personal view is that right now, the state of U.S. privacy law is not very good for consumers and not very good for businesses because there's too many laws to figure out. Right. It's only good for privacy lawyers because we get to, <laughs> yeah, you know, we help our clients figure this out. But there's no reason we should develop law to make it easy for privacy lawyers to have jobs. I'd much rather have laws that give real protections to consumers and that companies can figure out. I mean, when companies have to spend so much time and energy just figuring out what the answer is, that's not productive. It's not, again, I, and, and there are clearly people who, who, are, who disagree with what I'm about to say. But most companies just, they want to know what the law is. They'll, they're, they're fine following the law. They just want to know what it is. And if it's hard to figure out what it is, that's just a, you know, that's an inefficiency that isn't helpful to either businesses or consumers. And we certainly have a lot of that right now in the United States, where there's just, again, different laws regulating the same data, depending on who has it for what purpose and for what reason. And it's, it's just a complicated mess. It is a complicated mess in the United States and perhaps even the world. (laughs) But while we have you, do you have any last words of wisdom for our audience, privacy related or non-privacy related? (laughs) (laughs) Words of wisdom. I mean, look, this is a really interesting area these days. I'm going to presume that your audience is people who are interested in this topic, many of whom are either working in the area already or are students who are interested in working in the area. There's going to be tremendous opportunities in this space for the foreseeable future. It's a growing space. It's getting more and more complicated. That means that you have lots of opportunities to fill in you know, different niches. When I started doing work in this area, there was the healthcare rules, there was financial services. I could learn two things. It wasn't that hard. Now there's you know, 100 things you have to learn. And so I feel kind of bad for my young colleagues who have to learn all of those things all at once. But at the same time, I've, I've been talking about one of, my, one of my colleagues who's about a, I don't know, he's a fourth year lawyer, I guess now. He's been working on these state privacy laws. They're about two or three years old. He knows as much about these state privacy laws as anybody in the country because they're <laughs> only three years old. And so there's really an opportunity there. This new federal, if, if a federal privacy law passes, we're all going to be starting to figure that out. And so there's tremendous opportunities in this area, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're not a lawyer, whether you're interested in compliance, whether you're interested in product design, whether you're interested in marketing. I mean, there's just all kinds of, of professional opportunities all over this space. And again, that's going to be continuing for a really long time. 
Absolutely. Even in the think tank world too. <laughs> well, again, a national law is not going to end the need to think about these issues. It's going to, it's going to shift the dialogue, but it's going to create just a whole, I don't know, that second generation or third generation, but we'll be, you will be able to think about this for, again, you're young and have a lot of career ahead of you. You'll probably be able to spend your whole career on this if that's what you end up trying to do. So. <laughs> I agree. I think that the issue of privacy will never not be important. It'll never not be relevant, especially as, I mean, technology continues to advance and everybody continues to use the internet. So I think that's a great note to end on. Kirk, thank you so much for the conversation and for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.